appreciate Byron leading worship this morning and Brother Shane's absence. So we are dismissing Children's Church, which are preschoolers, and also dismissing Warehouse Worship for those that are fourth grade, first, second, third, fourth graders. All right. So in 2019, we have been making our way through the Bible and looking at it from 30,000 foot and trying to see the one big story. As we make our way through the Bible, there are certain big events, and we've seen some of those. There are also some big individuals maybe what we would even call monumental figures. And this morning as we travel through the Bible, we come to one of those monumental figures. It's almost as if we are hiking through the mountains and there are mountains and we're, we're pointing out the different significance of those. And then all of a sudden, there is this huge mountain that we have to stop and just look at and understand its significance. This morning when we come to the person in the Bible who is originally called Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, he is one of those monumental figures that this morning we pause and we look at and we have to comprehend his significance and the place that he plays in God's one big story. God, Paul's, well, he's known as Saul, so this is a little bit awkward. Saul, we're going to be looking at him for a, a little while. Saul is his Hebrew name. When he gets out into the Greek world, his name is Paul, and so if I say either one, you just know who I'm talking about today. His significance is in his works and in his writings. Um, the Apostle Paul in his works becomes the one, the leading force of the expansion of the church in the known world in the first century. I mean, if we're just talking about big figures, I was, I was thinking of this list that if we were to talk about the greats of the greats, say in the Old Testament, I think we would talk about Abraham, we would talk about Moses, and we would talk about David. Uh, that, that's my list. If we come to the New Testament, obviously you have Jesus. I mean, that's the Sunday school answer, but it works this time. Who's the most important figure in the New Testament? Just go, Jesus. But the second person, strangely, is a man who doesn't even start off in the Jesus story. And it is Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul, the apostle. Because it is... It is not Peter, it is not John, it is not one of the other 12 that, that is the leading force of the expansion of the church. It is this guy who comes in late into the story. In fact, if you look at, if you look at your handout at the end of your pews, and if you look at the timeline, and we'll use this timeline for several weeks, um, we don't know exactly when. But Paul's conversion, we can probably date in 34 A.D. Jesus dies and is resurrected and ascends to the Father, and Pentecost happens in 30. 
So even when we come to Acts chapter 9 this morning, you have to know that four years have passed since Acts chapter 2. So he comes in the story late, but there is no question that he becomes the leading force, the driving force of church expansion in the first century. And the, so it's not just his works, but it's also his writings. The Apostle Paul writes 13 of the 27 books. It's not exactly by volume, uh, half of the New Testament. It's probably closer to a quarter or a third because his books tend to be shorter than some of the others. But half of the, almost half of the books in the New Testament were written by Paul. And it is Paul's theology that marks the Christian movement. And we are a reflection of what Paul wrote and believed in his practice of Christianity until this day. There is, in Saul of Tarsus' life, there is a defining moment. And it's in Acts chapter 9. This is such a huge story. So all of a sudden, yes, we come up to this mountain of a man, a monumental figure. And sometimes the story is about events. Sometimes it's about a person. And this morning we're sort of talking about a person, but we're talking about the defining moment in his life. Uh, this is such a monumental story that in Luke's 28 chapters, he includes this story in detail three times, not only here in Acts 9, but also in chapter 22 and also in chapter 26. This is the defining moment in Saul of Tarsus' life. Look with me this morning at Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Uh, it says, Then Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. When we are introduced to Saul of Tarsus, he is the leading persecutor of the early church. This is bore out in a couple other scriptures. He is in Luke, I'm sorry, in Acts 5, I'm sorry. In Luke 7:58, when Stephen is martyred, Luke makes a note that they laid their garments at the feet of a young man, make a note of that, named Saul. Saul was there when Stephen was stoned to death. And then in chapter 8, verse 3, it says that Saul, that he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And what happens in Acts 8 is the church is scattered because of persecution. Paul is such a zealous persecutor of the church that he is, <laughs> the Christians have scattered. He's saying, I'm going to go after them. I'm even going to go to Damascus. And that's what he's engaged in when we encounter here, him here. But what you have to understand is that he is the face. He is the lead man of the persecution of the early church. And I wrote this on your, on your handout, gave you the details of this. But if, 
if Acts 1 and 2 is about the formation of the church, then Acts is, Acts is, I just need to bring it down this morning. Bring it down. Acts 3 through 8 is the period of persecution in the church. And Saul of Tarsus is the face of that persecution. And that's where we encounter him in those first two verses. Verse 3 of Acts 9. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Saul of Tarsus has an experience on the road to Damascus. <laughs> it is not a vision. It is not a dream. It is an encounter with a person. And that person is identified in the story as Jesus Christ. It is not, get this, Jesus Christ did not send a light. Jesus Christ in his glorified state is the light. <laughs> that at noonday, which is told later, uh, and I believe the, the Acts 22 account, his glory is greater than the noonday sun so that it would blind Saul of Tarsus. He did not send a light. Jesus is the light. It is his glorified presence. And what you have to understand at this point in the story, Saul of Tarsus has an encounter with a person and that person identifies himself as Jesus. We've got to call a time out here because this did not fit Paul's uh, state of mind and understanding of reality. Why was Saul persecuting Christians? Because they were blasphemers. They said the Messiah had come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. They had the audacity to claim that that Jesus of Nazareth whom it was identified, they, they witnessed his, his crucifixion and they put him in a tomb. They had the audacity to say that that Jesus of Nazareth had been raised from the dead and was alive and was seated at the right hand of the Father. And Paul, as a good Jew and one who did not believe that, would have believed that was blasphemy and that they were deserving of death. And that's what he was in a pursuit of. Okay, but now you got an encounter with the one he said was dead who is speaking to him and it is clear that he is a person of incredible glory. He has every reason to believe, yes, he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he has come to make himself known to me today. Do you understand how this would have rocked Saul of Tarsus mindset because he believed that Jesus was dead but it was clear that he was alive and he was Lord Saul of Tarsus was confronted with the facts that what he called a hoax was history that Jesus really had been raised from the dead now this is this is this is a um, hmm, 
this is an odd, this is a unique story. This is not just a, an odd story. This is a unique story because you have to ask the question at this point, who else did Jesus ever personally appear to? Not just in the Bible, I mean, after his ascension. Who did Jesus ever appear to? Not just in the Bible, but in history. I don't know. You may throw, throw out some kind of cult leader or something like that right now. I'm going to say that's a lie. No. I, there is no one else. I, I may, somebody may come to me after church and say, well, what about so-and-so? And I, I, yeah, maybe so. I can't think of another person that Jesus personally made himself known to them in his glorified state. There may have been angels, there may have been visions, there may have been dreams, but if you're talking about Jesus showing up and speaking to somebody in a personal encounter, I don't know of anybody else. And you have to ask the question at this point, why? Why Saul of Tarsus? And it is a question we will have to come back to. One of the things that strikes me is that Saul of Tarsus falls to his knees. And I get this visual picture that Saul is on his journey. Mm. I was about to say something, but it's not, I don't think it's appropriate. Sorry, now you want me to say it. He was bent on doing this. He was Hades bent on doing this. Searching for words here. I'm sorry, that's, that's not good. Hey, just delete that from the Facebook post of this, okay? No, he was, no, no, he was, you're heading in this direction, and Jesus said, no, you're going down on your knees. You're, you're stopping right there. You're done. You've been pressing this direction, and you're done. And, and Saul falls to his knees. Jesus stops him in his tracks. In verse 6, it says, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. In the encounter with Jesus, Jesus blinds Saul of Tarsus as an outward demonstration of not physical blindness. He was struck physically blind, but to denote his spiritual blindness. Not only are you going to have to deal with me being alive and being Lord, but you need to come to grips Saul of Tarsus, that you are blind to the truth. And so Jesus strikes him blind. Verse 10, Now there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Anytime God speaks your name, just say, Here I am, Lord. All right? So the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the street called Straight. Still there to this day in Damascus. And inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. If you encounter Jesus on the road and you're blind, the best thing to do is to pray. I'm being a little bit funny here. 
you don't laugh at my jokes, I'll keep telling more. It'll go longer. Thank you. Thank you. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. Remember, he's the leading force, the face of persecution. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, notice what God says to Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Ananias is called by Jesus to go and to speak and to give sight and baptize Saul of Tarsus. We learn from these words that God tells Ananias in surely words that he would, would, have, would have related after this to Saul of Tarsus, that Saul was a chosen vessel. One of the things that interests me, and it's, we're going to see it here in just a minute, don't you love it when God says, for I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Wow. That was a happy, clappy moment, wasn't it? Hey, I've chosen you, and I want you to know really your life is going to be about suffering. Verse 17, and Ananias went his way and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he received his sight at once and he arose and was baptized. So when he had received food, he was strengthened then Saul spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Jesus took his sight. When Saul of Tarsus surrendered his life to the Lord Jesus, then Jesus gave him sight as a statement of, now you see what truth is. Not only did he give him sight, but he gave him salvation. And this is the moment, this is the experience, not even on the road to Damascus, but in the house in Damascus where Saul of Tarsus is converted and Jesus completely changes the direction of his life. And I want you to kind of grasp that, that really that's what salvation does, is I've been heading this way and maybe not quite as dramatically as Saul, my life is stopped and I turn to Christ and instead of walking that way, I begin to walk this way. That is, what is, that is repentance. But there is no more dramatic 180 degree turn of radical transformation than this story right here. Notice it says in verse 20. Notice how this, this plays out. Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Then all who heard were amazed and said, 
Is this not he who destroyed those who called on this name in Jerusalem and has come here for that purpose so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? So Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Now, there's a, there's a break in here, and I'm going to talk about it here in just a minute, between verse 22 and verse 23, and we know this from some scriptures in Galatians. But notice it says, Now, after many days were passed, actually, that's going to be three years, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. This is where the suffering comes in. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down through the wall in a large basket. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. So he was with them at Jerusalem coming in and going out. And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Hellenist, but they attempted to kill him. Note again the suffering and the persecution. Verse 30, when the brethren found out, they brought him down to Caesarea, which is a port city, and they sent him out to Tarsus, which is where his home was. The conversion of Saul of Tarsus <laughs> is a phenomenal event of epic proportion because it is the greatest story of radical transformation. Saul of Tarsus becomes the least likely character ever to become the leading force of the Christian movement because he is the face of persecution in the first century. But in the transformation that only Jesus could bring, the chief persecutor becomes the persecuted. He becomes the leading force of Christianity that becomes a lightning bolt. If ever there was someone who, who turned and would have infuriated those who were on that same path as he was, it was Saul of Tarsus who becomes Paul the Apostle. As I looked at the big picture... And I want to spend just these last few moments in this. And you look at that transformation, this monumental figure, this monumental event, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. There are really three phases that I want us to think about and really apply to your life and my life. Even though I don't know if anybody else is going to have a story like this. There's three things. In fact, hey, Nathan, I want to put all three up on the screen. One, two, and three. There's three aspects, phases, of this radical transformation. Do we have those? We will have those. Make a mental note. We used to do this without the screens years ago. We did it for a bunch of decades. Okay, peoples? It is, the first phase is kicking the goads. The second is the road to Damascus. And the third, I'm just going to throw this in, is Arabia. 
There it is. Now, the road to Damascus is a conversion experience. Uh, but it was not that this experience came out of the blue. Because when Jesus said, I, I am Jesus, in, in verse 5, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad was a sharp object that someone who was driving oxen would use to prod the oxen on who had stopped. <clears throat> goad. <clears throat> sharp object. <clears throat> move forward. I need you to move this direction. What Jesus says and implies is that Saul of Tarsus, God, I, the Holy Spirit, have been goading you to go to the direction you ought to go, but instead of you going in that direction, you are kicking against the goads. You are resisting. You are rebelling. Does this, I don't know if this word picture, I should have really probably had a goat up here and an oxen. I should have. It should have been a picture on the screen. I don't. Uh, sharp object, oxen, you ought to go that way, but the oxen, and think what it would hurt, it would hurt you know, to kick against a sharp object, force on force, and it's going to be painful. Do you understand that Jesus is implying that before this encounter that Saul of Tarsus had been kicking against the goats? He had been resisting the movement of God in his life to change his direction or to get moving in the direction that God had for him. You say, what, what is that? And we don't really know. But Jesus said, God has been working in your life you know, there's almost a little bit, I think a little bit exasperation in, in Jesus. Listen, we've tried about everything we know to try, and you're still not moving. That's why I have showed up today. No, you're going to do this, buddy. We can do it the hard way. We can do it the easy way. But we're going to do it. I think there's a couple things you have to make a note of. We don't know exactly how old Saul is but he is close in age to Jesus of Nazareth. Now, we don't have any indication for whatever reason that Saul of Tarsus was in Jerusalem for Jesus' ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection. But Saul of Tarsus knows what's going on, and he knows the stories that have been told of Jesus. And I believe it was something in his mind and his heart that was gnawing at him that they would say he was raised from the dead that they would say he died for our sins that he ascended to the father that he is lord that the spirit came there were historical events that were hard to explain away that i think related to the life of jesus that were gnawing at saul i think part of it was the life and ministry and the historical fact of what jesus had done the other thing that was surely God used as a prod in Saul's life was the death, the martyrdom of Stephen, which it says that they laid their garments as they stoned him at his feet. Saul of Tarsus watched this man die for what he believed was a lie and even looked up and he said he saw Jesus which would have been blasphemy to Saul of Tarsus. He watched 
that man die and was willing to die for what he said was true, that Jesus had died for his sins and been raised from the dead and was ascended at the right hand of God and he reigned and he is Christ and he is Lord, he is Messiah. And he stood there and he took it when he could have said, no, I don't believe that and escaped punishment. And I believe from what Luke records that that would have that would have been God's prod one of God's prods in Saul's life to say what about that how do you reconcile that in your mind that a man would die for what he knew was a lie I think there was something even as Paul will write later his own sense of unrighteousness You almost get this sense that Saul is so zealous to persecute the church because he is under conviction. He can't explain Jesus. He can't explain Stephen. And he knows in his heart, regardless of the front he puts on as a Pharisee of Pharisees, that his heart is not right with God. And he can't reconcile it through his own religion. And it was all even before he came to faith in Christ, the goad, the prodding of God. The second part is that road to Damascus. And really his conversion, I've said, is in Damascus. What we understand from the story at this point about his transformation is that Jesus initiated that encounter with Saul of Tarsus. If ever there was anybody in history who was not looking for Jesus that day, it was Saul of Tarsus on the road to, to Damascus. It is Jesus that initiates an encounter with him. Jesus shows up, not Saul looking for God, found Jesus. No, Jesus found Saul question I asked earlier is why? Why was this so critical? Why would God do something I don't think he ever did, has ever done since his ascension is to show up himself. Somehow in the, in the mind and the plan of God, Saul of Tarsus is the rare combination of character, intellect, and passion that God needed to lead the charge. In the Damascus experience, though, Saul of Tarsus had to surrender his will, his life, his direction. I love this thought. <laughs> the other option Saul had was to keep doing what he was doing, but he was just going to remain blind. No. You don't want to believe in the truth of Jesus Christ, then it's almost like Jonah getting sent to the whale. Oh, no, you don't have to go to the Ninevites. No, completely fine with me. I've got another plan. This will be really fun. We'll tell this children's story for years because you wanted to be disobedient. And I think Saul of Tarsus would have just remained blind the rest of his life. He did have a choice that day. Jesus did not make him do anything. There was a point where Saul surrenders his life. And he believes duh, that Jesus is who he said he was, and yes, he's been raised from the dead, 
and I've got to change everything I believe and surrender my life to him. Oh, you want to do that? Then I think I'll send Ananias and you can receive your sight because it is a statement that now you see. And so that's part of the experience of Damascus. But there's a third part. Ah, I don't really have time for this today. We may pick it up some other time. And I know I haven't even talked about Arabia, but Arabia is the desert, Saudi Arabia. It's outside of Damascus. And what we understand from Galatians 1 is that Saul in his own, Paul at this point, says in his own story of the chronology, he went to Damascus, and for then for three years, he went into the desert, into Arabia. He came back to Damascus. He leaves. He comes to Jerusalem for a short stay. They send him to Caesarea. He goes to, uh, to Tarsus. And then later in Acts, we're going to see this, two weeks, he comes to, to Antioch, Syrian Antioch, uh, and is a part of that church. Uh, that's kind of the geographical plot. I, I know you can't follow that. I don't know why I said that. But the point being, according to Galatians, Paul said, I did not go to Jerusalem and consult the apostles about the teaching of Jesus. He said, I went into Arabia, and I was there for three years. And the only thing I can figure <laughs> is just like the 12 had spent three years with Jesus, Paul had to so reorientate his mind with the truth that he had been confronted with, it took him three years to process. Do you get it? By himself. You say, wait a second, who taught Saul of Tarsus in the Arabian desert? The Holy Spirit did. That's why he would say, I did not receive my gospel from man. That's his point in Galatians. I received it from God. Do you understand that even though Paul initially preaches in Damascus, he retreats, and he has to so reorientate his mind for this trend. So it's one thing for you to be on the road to Damascus and God turn you around to a new direction, but the reality is you have to have the transformation of your mind. And so what I see, and this is what I want to conclude with, is that the story of transformation moves from the kicking of the goads of God initiating a relationship with us and repentance in our life even before our conversion to that point of conversion where we come to the place where we understand who Jesus is and we come to the place of surrender. But even once Jesus changes our direction, there has to be transformation of mind to move forward in the journey. And conversion may change our direction, but it's only sanctification that changes our character and our mind to see who we need to be. kicking of the goads, the road to Damascus, Arabia. Pre-conversion, conversion, salvation, you might say, you can say, 
but on to sanctification, transformation of life. And I guess what I would ask you is where are you in that process? There's probably people here today that God is goading you and you've not surrendered your life yet to Christ. And there are things that God is convicting you in your heart to move you in that direction. And the point of the conversion is this. It is the statement of faith that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead and he is the only way to the Father and he died for my sins on the cross and he was raised in power to give me everlasting life and he reigns today. He is is everything. He is the only Savior. He is the Lord. And the point of conversion is your surrender that says yes to Christ. I believe you are. And and I'm not saying anybody's going to have a light today. Everybody's story is different. Some of you, that may have happened years ago. And it's one thing to change the direction of your life, but there's more to the Christian experience. There is a transformation of life. There is what the Bible would say, a big Christianese word, sanctification making you holy you understand you may say well no 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 I've turned to Christ I've been saved when I was 10 years of age and I ask you then what is the transformation that has occurred in your life where has your mind been changed because Paul had to change everything everything he believed in the way he saw everything had to change for him to follow Christ. And my simple challenge, I'm going to ask you to stand. My simple challenge, as we have our time of invitation today, is what is the step? What is the step? What is the next step in the process for you? What is it that Christ asks you to do? This morning the altar is open. I'm at the front. Uh, As you have decisions to make, if you need to talk to me about the step of following Jesus. I'd love for to talk with you. You'll come as brother. Bob. I hear the Savior say, "I'm so sorry. That's the wrong key. That's not going to be good if we keep going." Here.